2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill. Too much trash and not enough places to put it. This legislative session, Connecticut's waste management crisis is already a top ticket item for lawmakers. Before it began, the co-chair of the State Environment Committee said he's focused on finding solutions. Katie Dykes, commissioner of the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, said the dwindling options for waste disposal in Connecticut present a silent crisis. The crisis got worse last July. That's when a major waste plant closed, The Materials Innovation and Recycling Authority, or MIRA, closed its Hartford incinerator, forcing more of Connecticut's trash to out-of-state landfills. Food collection programs are one way the state hopes to cut back on how much we throw away. A state grant program is helping to implement food waste collection programs, and there are already scrap collection offerings in Middletown and West Haven. Coming up, we hear from the nearby city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Citywide Food Waste Collection is now a mainstay. Plus, Elena Wood is a climate communicator known as the Garbage Queen. She'll answer all of your questions about trash and climate anxiety. Call us at 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Here to help us dig into the waste crisis first is our guest, Cole Rosengren, lead editor for Waste Dive. Cole, thanks so much for coming on today. Hello. Hello. Good morning. So, I guess, Cole, uh, first, maybe some terminology here. I know waste energy can mean a lot of things, uh, but in general terms, what do we mean when we say a waste to energy plant?
3: Yeah, roughly uh, the idea is there's Different types of technology that are used, um, but you're, you're taking the waste and you're trying to get um, caloric value, energy value out of it. So in the case of the Mira plant that recently closed, it was an old coal plant and they converted it over to be um, a recovered fuel for waste plants. So they'd um, process the waste, get it together um, and then make steam out of it to make energy.
2: And so we should just differentiate real quickly. Uh, you know, a lot of people who drive by the Mira plant here uh, in Hartford uh, see it's obviously a facility that wasn't closed with a big smokestack. This is this is different from a burn pit, right?
3: Correct. Yes. Um, yeah. These facilities uh, have to operate under federal and state emissions guidelines. Doesn't mean there's, of course, not room for further improvement, um, especially in environmental justice communities. People call this out, but uh, yeah, they are they are meant to be filtering their emissions and trying to limit what's going out in the air.
2: Okay. Um, so we mentioned you know, the plant closed in July. Um, uh, you know, Generally speaking, why was this a big deal? I know a lot of people don't think about trash and, 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 and care about it uh, sort of beyond curbside. Uh, but why was it a big deal when this plant closed?
3: Yeah, the Mira plant um, was handling a very large share of the state's waste. Um, and now that it's closed, the vast majority of that is getting exported to other states. So, based on um, recent data from the state DEP, um, the amount of waste being exported is estimated to have doubled. Now that the airplane is closed, and what that means is it's going generally by truck uh, to landfills in other states and other people's communities. In this case, a lot of it going to Pennsylvania, to my knowledge.
2: And you know, obviously, uh, in New England, particularly in Southern New England, this is a, a densely populated area. Um, uh, I- my my assumption would be, you know there's not going to be landfills that are popping up in this region uh, at a, at a very high rate.
3: Correct. no, it's it's gone the opposite direction. Um, yeah, the Northeast disposal capacity is expected to continue to decline uh, in the coming years. Uh, I'm up here in the Boston area myself. Massachusetts is not expected to open any new landfills or allow that. Maine has been limiting um, waste coming in. Vermont is down to one landfill. New Hampshire, for now, is still taking some, but not much. Same with Rhode Island. Um, so it's going farther west to you know upstate New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, maybe down south. But even there, um, you know, there's there's room, but people are not eager to have new landfills or new incinerators.
2: What? Uh, why are they not eager? I mean, I th- maybe some of the reasons are obvious, but what are those conversations like when these projects are proposed?
3: Yeah, um, it's it's a big deal in terms of, you know, environmental justice considerations. Um, some people raise quality of life issues. You know, there's a lot of truck traffic coming in and out of these facilities. Concerns about emissions um, when it comes to landfill. There can be concerns about groundwater effects. Again, of course, the, the facilities try to mitigate these things and operate within the regulatory requirements. Um, and it's and with a landfill, too, it's just a lot of space, a lot of acreage that is taken up. And that was part of why, you know, um, these uh, waste energy plants became more popular in the 80s and 90s. Was that they could be sited in cities? It's common in Europe and other countries to see this, and you know, it takes less space to do so.
2: Well, and I wanted to ask you about that. So, you know, here in Hartford, a little further north uh, on uh, the highway, here uh, there is one of those old landfills that Hartford operated. It's 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 covered now. There's actually solar panels on top of it. But you know, for a long, long time, this was basically just a mountain of trash um uh so uh, i i guess you know um speak a bit about kind of kind of that idea you know why why again sort of why these aren't popular in these cities
3: yeah um you know that like i said it takes up a lot of space um and it's a multi decade time frame before a landfill can be uh, considered fully closed sometimes even after that not not a 100% you know uh, something you can walk away from in terms of managing there's gases that come out um Methane gas is the, a, a big factor. This comes from decomposing food waste and organic material, which, of course, is also a big uh, contributor to uh, climate change issues, much more potent than CO2. Um, concerns about, yeah, just all, all these things that happen. And it's a lot, of, a lot of space to take up. Sometimes you can, you know, like say put solar panels on, maybe a golf course or a park that does happen. Um, <laughs> but it takes up a lot of valuable real estate in cities.
2: And I guess, um, you know, my, my broader question there being, you know, in some ways, it seems like uh, we're, we're kind of turning the clock back now, right? You mentioned uh, that the mirror plant was was a plant that was converted uh, decades ago uh, as an old coal plant to a, to a waste energy plant with the idea being, hey, you know, we're creating this waste here in Connecticut. We want to manage it within our state borders. Uh, we don't want to landfill it, so we'll do this. Um, but now- uh, we're 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 landfilling it somewhere else. We're kind of shipping out our our waste to another community and saying, "Hey, you know, y- you all deal with it."
3: Yeah, no, and this idea of self sufficiency is you know, it comes up a lot with people who are proponents of the waste energy technology. Um, I would say the situation in Connecticut is not unique. You know, there's many major cities now. It's less and less common for them to have the disposal infrastructure in the city limits anymore. They're now sending it out elsewhere too, kind of making it somebody else's. Um, problem to deal with in these other communities. And, you know, there are efforts now in Connecticut and elsewhere, which I imagine we'll talk about to try to limit the amount of waste that needs to be disposed in the first place, through recycling, through composting. But, you know, those things take time, have their own complications, um, and there's still gonna be a need for disposal for a while. So this, and it's only gonna get more expensive too, that's the factor. It costs more to export this stuff farther. labor, fuel, all these things. Um, Connecticut towns and cities are paying more now to deal with their trash.
2: That coupled with uh, recent price trends across the country, inflation, I mean, are, are we seeing that those costs are, are are going up or are there any trends you're observing there?
3: Yeah, going up substantially, um, not just in Connecticut, the Northeast, but around the country. Um, we at WasteEye, we track the full US waste and recycling industry and all companies of all sizes from the largest publicly traded down to smaller private ones um, are raising prices now um, to keep up with labor inflation. Like I said, transportation fuel, this and that—it's uh, not going to go away. I would be quite surprised if it goes in the other direction. Um, so this is a, a big challenge for city budgets, you know, to to manage this, and it's uh, but at the same time, an essential public utility that they have to deal with. Mm.
2: Uh, so Cole, you mentioned there are other ways that we can uh, cut down on our trash. Um, there's a few I'd like to go through, but I guess I'll just open it up to you. I mean, are you seeing any? Any broad trends nationwide for things that either states are, or towns are doing uh, to get people to cut down on the amount of stuff that they throw into their trash cans?
3: Yeah, uh, there's a few different categories. I'd say the um, probably the the type of um, policy, state policy that's been getting a lot of attention lately, it's um, a concept called extended producer responsibility. The idea being that the companies who make the packaging, which we're all buying, um, we'll have some kind of financial stake in figuring out what happens to it on the back end. We see this in other countries. We see this in Canadian provinces. And now there are four U.S. states um, that have passed laws in the last couple of years, and are working toward um, setting up systems for that. Um, it's been discussed in Connecticut as well. Nothing has passed, but it's a possibility. Some people think that could really um, boost the level of recycling, you know, modernize the system. So that's one big area. Um, uh, container deposit laws or bottle bills, which Connecticut does have and, um, has actually expanded, which was a rare feat. It's pretty hard to get one of those expanded
2: <laughs> it was years uh, in the making.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was a big deal. Yep. You know, to add, I know as of uh, January one, this year, uh, Connecticut residents can put more stuff in this, in the stream that they couldn't before. And then as of next year, it'll, uh, the deposit will go up to 10 cents. So that a lot of people think could really help. And then the final one is food waste, which makes up at least a third, if not more, of the waste stream, um, that's the stuff that's you know putting out uh, methane emissions, contributing to climate change in the disposal sites. That's the stuff that's smelling and attracting pests. And if that can instead go to a compost site or an, an, an aer- anaerobic digester, both of which do exist in Connecticut, um, that could really make a big difference.
2: So, Cole, you know, obviously, uh, so much of waste disposal has to do with with costs. As you were mentioning, those those costs are going up. Um, a lot of the ways that you just described to cut down on trash uh, deal with costs, but they're, they're kind of shifting the cost, extended producer responsibilities uh, laws. You know, The consumer can may, maybe pay some of those costs up front if they purchase something, but companies are also putting up money there too. Um, one other one, pay-as-you-throw programs or, or unit-based pricing. This is, this is a way to kind of directly put the cost of throwing stuff away on consumers. Can you, can you sort of explain what that is and how that works?
3: Sure. Um, yeah, we it describes pay as you throw um, New York City, they like to call it save as you throw because uh, they've had yep. some political challenges getting that through. So they're trying to make it more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea being that, you know, as as the same way we pay for our water or our electricity or anything else uh, based on volume, um, the same would happen for trash. And so there's different ways that it can be done. Sometimes there's a special colored uh, bag or a tag you need to put out your trash. Sometimes it, um, different size of trash containers, it, you know, it's done different ways around the country. But the idea is to, you know, incentivize more recycling and when it's available, more um, organics, recycling, composting, and charge more for the trash that has to go to a landfill or an incinerator.
2: Okay. Uh, So we'll be talking a bit about food waste and food waste recycling a little bit more in the next segment. Um, I I guess, uh, Cole, you know, before we take a quick break here, um, you report on trash all around uh, the country. I'm sure you're looking at what other nations are doing as well. How would you compare Connecticut regionally or nationally on on waste management uh, innovation?
3: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting time for Connecticut. Um, you know, before Mira closed, it was uh, at one time the largest uh, user of waste energy, you know, in terms of self-sufficiency. So a lot was staying within the state that had been a state policy that had been happening. Um, but now it's the costs are going to go up. That's going to be a factor and that they're not, not alone in that. Um, I would say there's more movement than some areas, some states. Uh, some of these things we've talked about are not happening and are not expected to happen anytime soon. But people also view Connecticut as having um, room to improve in terms of, you know, possibly tightening laws, tightening regulations on this, helping uh, provide more support to local governments, DPAT, you know, just rolled out five million in grants to help cities and towns recently. That was beneficial. More could happen. Um, So I'd say it's, you know, maybe middle, middle of the pack, if not above average in terms of what's happening around the country.
2: Uh, We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, This is uh, Connecticut Public Radio. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Patrick Scahill. Cole, you can stay with us, and we'll be right back. Coming up, we'll hear from uh, the Recycling Director of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they're in their fifth year of citywide food waste collection, and later the Garbage Queen answers your questions. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
0: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving.
2: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill. There have been at least two state grants offered to Connecticut towns and cities aimed at helping offset the rising cost of waste management through pay-as-you-throw programs or food scrap collection. One city in neighboring Massachusetts has been collecting food waste citywide for more than five years. Here to discuss their program is Mike Orr, Recycling Director for the Department of Public Works in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mike, good morning.
1: Good morning, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
2: thanks for coming on. And still with us on Zoom is Cole Rosengren, lead editor for Waste Dive. What questions do you have about waste management where you live? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, so, Mike, why did Cambridge uh, want to recycle food? I understand this is a program you started several years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple reasons for starting. At first was the environmental benefits. Um, but as things kind of grew, we started to seeing the cost savings be a big piece of this. Um, And then the third reason really today, which has really taken off as a main reason for doing this, is rodent control in the city of Cambridge. So, you know, a lot of people are concerned about uh, all the rodents getting into trash bins or being in neighborhoods. And we're finding that composting food waste can help with the rodent issue.
2: So uh, briefly describe how how this program works, uh, you know, what residents have to do and then where the waste goes.
1: So residents just have to request the little kitchen bin that the city provides um, so they can have a bin in their kitchen to collect all their food waste. And then they have an outdoor bin that they put out at the curb every week for us to collect. And that's really about all the resident has to do. And after we collect the food waste, it's sent to Charlestown, Massachusetts, basically a, a piece of Boston, Massachusetts, where the food is slurried and then sent to an anaerobic digester to create clean energy.
2: Uh, Anaerobic digester, just quickly describe what that means.
1: So, anaerobic digestion is the process of using no oxygen to digest food waste. And basically, the, the stuff that comes out of it is methane, which can then be used to put into the natural gas pipelines, or it can just be used on site to create your own clean energy.
2: Okay, great. Uh, I do want to ask you a bit about uh, rodent control in a minute, Mike, but uh, real fast, I want to uh, go to the phones here. We have uh, Bud in New London is calling in. Bud, uh, you're on where we live.
4: Uh, thank you so much. It's, uh, I, I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. So uh, we've been having a conversation about having a creative reuse recycling center here in New London, and uh, David Aldrich over in Groton with Scara, uh, or already has the uh, – Anaerobic uh, digester over there. So we want to open up a regional center where we uh, where we actually uh, recycle at the curbside or at a neighborhood uh, transfer station. Uh, there's a lot of valuable recycled materials uh, that are being mashed together, uh, and once you do that, it's hard to separate them again. So we separate it right at the curbside, and uh, we create a a Creative Reuse Recycling Center underneath a bridge. We make that material available to artists. Um, I'm working with uh, Cheryl Baldwin, and she's the recycle guru for the state for DEEP, Uh, and they had a wonderful art show uh, in New Haven at the Institute Library um, that was sponsored by EcoWorks uh, that was all artwork made from recycled material.
2: You're, well, great. Uh, Bud, thank you so much for for that comment. Uh Cole uh, Rosengren from uh, Waste Dive, I'll throw it back to you. You know, Bud mentioned this idea of regionalization and um uh, towns and cities uh sort of working together or uniting on the issue of trash. Um I, I guess maybe just speak a little bit about, you know, we talked about costs earlier. Uh the power of numbers here when communities come together to uh collaborate on this versus trying to take it, you know, piece by piece. Um, I, I imagine that could be a beneficial thing and a way to, to perhaps cut down on costs.
3: It certainly can. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely you get more, uh, like you said, more, more smaller value from the scale to, to come together with this. Um, sometimes it can even be easier to cite infrastructure in terms of where the material is going to get dropped off, where it's going to get handled. And, um, yeah, I think this is definitely beneficial because the usually the companies that um, these cities and towns are negotiating with, they have, they're the ones who have the leverage. You know, there's not that much infrastructure around to take this stuff. And so cities and towns can come together. They can sometimes get a better price. That was in part the model that Mira had tried to do uh, to bring all these dozens of towns together. Granted, that, you know, is, is shifting out of phase now. Um, but that concept still makes sense. Mm.
2: And, and Mike, I, you know, I guess picking up on the, the topic of communication, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. You're obviously having to do a lot of communication with, uh, with residents for this food, waste, recycling program. Uh, I imagine you're also having to do a fair amount of communication with uh, businesses when new owners come in uh, to companies in the town. Um, and there's costs associated with that. So uh, speak a bit more about uh, the communication you have to do with people and, and how Cambridge handles that.
1: Yeah, so when we launched the program, we focused a lot of time on why people should do the compost program. And we have our own reasons. Um, Like Cole said, there's a limited amount of space for landfills and incineration, so we really need to get creative about reducing the amount of trash we're generating in the first place. But how that shows up to cities is on cost. So it costs us significantly less to send our food waste to anaerobic digestion than to send it to trash. So cost is first. Protecting the environment is another major one. You know, I think most people agree that climate change is here and, you know, we have to deal with it. And this is a very tangible way for people to make an impact. And then third is, again, going back to rodents. You know, we want to try to keep our city clean and sanitary. Um, and so we're really trying to push people to, say, to show that this is a program that has three major benefits associated with it that all benefit the resident and the city government overall. And then bringing in businesses onto this. So we were able to launch a residential program, and as that kind of developed, we saw an opportunity to launch a business composting pilot. So now we're supporting 75 restaurants and food retail businesses um, for collection because it's really easy to go on, you know, driving down the street. You're picking up residential building, then residential building, and then there's a business right there, and we might as well offer the service up and help businesses save some money and help them do the right thing.
2: Uh, what have you seen with rodent control and how this has uh, contributed to that in the city? I mean, is that, uh, I, I guess, how, how, do you even, how do you even start to track that? I mean, are you actually going out and, and counting rodents around trash bins, or how does that
1: work? <laughs> uh, close. Um, <laughs> we, we've, done some, uh, we've done some audits similar to that. You know, but one of the things we talk about is we just, you know, try to bring this down to the individual level to help them understand. So first thing that happens if you have a mouse in your home, you call an exterminator. The first or second thing they're going to tell you is put your food in a sealed container. So the same thing applies to rodents outside the home. If you put your food waste in an unsealed trash bin, that's really just an open buffet for a rodent. But if you put your food waste into a sealed compost cart, you're going to deter rodents way more than trash carts. And so how we've seen that is we actually started giving out Standard city issued trash barrels in um, the summer of 2022. Before we did that, we saw that 45% of our trash carts had holes in them from squirrels and rats. And so, you know, clean, doing a clean slate, giving everyone a new trash cart was a great way to kind of take a step forward with rodent control. But if we don't start separating our food waste, getting them into locking bins, we'll come back to having the same result. And as a result of launching these new trash bins, we've seen more trash carts come back to us with holes in them than compost carts. So in the first three months, we saw more trash carts with holes than in five years of compost carts being out in the community. So we've definitely seen that it works. And, you know, I'll point to kind of neighbor of you guys, DSNY says this over and over. If you want to help control the rodent issue, you got to put the food into a sealed container. That will help control the rodents better than putting them in a trash bin. Mm.
2: Um, uh, Cole, uh, I I wanted to ask you quickly a little bit uh, about sort of the public education on food waste, uh, when, when you're looking around the country, you know, obviously in the nineties, there was a big, uh, public education push for recycling and, uh, getting the separate blue bin out on the curb. Uh, now we have, uh, other communities uh, that are kind of piecemeal here and there saying, Oh, well maybe we'll put out another bin and maybe that's for food waste. Um, where, where is just, I guess the public awareness, uh, at on this issue right now? I mean, how would you describe it?
3: Yeah, I would say it's definitely evolved a good bit in the last number of years. Um, Uh, The U.S. EPA has set a goal to try to, you know, cut food waste in half, you know, 50% by 2030. That sort of tries, you know, sets the tone nationally. We've seen some large businesses adopt that and others follow along. There's been a big push also to make this, you know, to communicate more of the benefits, as Mike was saying, rodent control, cost savings. Another one is um, cost savings in the home. If you're sometimes this food is wasted, that didn't need to be wasted. You bought it at the grocery store, it went bad in your fridge. That's money you've lost. Or folks are going hungry. This is food that could be given to people, you know, edible quality food. And so there's a lot there's been a lot of successful campaigns um, by NRDC and others around the country to try to push some of these messages um, to say, look, this is not just a burden. We're not something we're forcing you to do or asking you to do. There's reasons that this is worthwhile for you to do as well. And that does seem to be catching on. More states are passing policies. A lot of. um, Local programs composting and other pilots have been launching around the country, dozens and dozens in the last few years. Um, but it's still probably not as prevalent as curbside blue bin recycling.
2: Mm. Um, uh, Mike, you're about uh, five years in on on this program. Uh, what's enthusiasm like right now? I mean, are, are most people doing this, or um, uh, can you speak a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely more than half of the. Households that have the program are using it. Um, we're kind of at the point where we're trying to work with large property managers to show them the benefits of doing this, you know, hoping that that will, you know, sell them on on road control in their building, um, and just really trying to get education out there. We have a very high turnover rate in our city because we've got a lot of graduate students that come in for Harvard and MIT, and a lot of people that move in and out of the city. So always trying to educate and keep the momentum going. You know, we start to see other cities near us joining in on the efforts. It really helps boost our numbers. So, you know, when we talk about regional collaboration, City of Boston, Watertown next door to us, they're all, uh, they they both have programs, and we're all kind of working together to figure out, like, how to keep the education and momentum going to get the whole region going forward on, on composting.
2: I want to take a quick call here, Uh, Arthur is calling in from Madison, and Arthur, you're on Where We Live.
1: Hi. Good morning.
4: I just wanted to mention that when I was a kid, we lived in a um, subsidized housing project in Chicopee, Massachusetts. It was a townhouse-style thing, with like three or four apartments in each building. And outside everybody's back stoop, there was an in-the-ground container with a removable pail and a tight-fitting lid for food waste. And once a week, the maintenance people for the housing project would come along and collect all the food waste. So it's not a new idea. I don't know what they did with it after it, it left the property, but um, this whole show reminded me of that. And so the idea has been around for a while, and I think it's really worthwhile.
2: Uh, thanks, Arthur, for that call. Uh, Mike, I, I guess, you know, what do, what do you make of that? Uh, people saying, hey, I grew up doing this and it sort of fell out of favor. I mean, is, is some of this kind of harkening back to things that we used to do in the past?
1: yeah Arthur nailed it on the head. We've had several residents tell me the exact same story, and uh, you may not be able to tell over the phone, but I am not uh someone that grew up with that i'm I'm kind of younger, but uh we we've heard that story, and you know what we did in Cambridge, we had the same similar program. We collected all the food waste, we actually brought it to where our former landfill is. And we gave them to a pig farmer who would come in every you know, week or so, take all the food waste and feed it to their pigs. And so, you know, it's kind of like what's old is new. It's, it isn't a brand new system, and it's, it's awesome hearing from other generations that they were doing it at home. So you've got the young generation that wants to do it for climate reasons, and you've got the older generation saying, no, this is just what we did in the past. So it's really great seeing different generations coming together on this.
2: From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Patrick Scahill. You were just listening there to Mike Orr. He's a recycling director in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Cole Rosengren, Waste Dive Lead Editor. Thank you both so much for coming on Where We Live today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: After the break, the Garbage Queen is going to be answering your questions. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill. Finding ways to address climate change in our everyday lives can feel overwhelming, but there are plenty of actionable steps to take. So says Elena Wood, aka the Garbage Queen. She runs a climate communication platform by the same name, dedicated to climate science and solutions. And she joins us on Where We Live right now. Elena, thanks so much for coming on.
5: Hi, thanks so much for having me, Patrick. I'm yeah, very excited to have this conversation. I'm glad
2: you're here. <laughs> Uh, Elena, we do have a, a few questions lined up uh, uh, for you here. But before we get to those, um, I, I wanted to just sort of uh, level set with you a little bit. So uh, I understand a lot of your expertise is, is centered around waste management. You worked for a private landfill company, a university recycling office, uh, and a civil engineering firm. So uh, a lot of experience there. Um, what have you observed in those earlier jobs that kind of galvanized you to, to help find waste solutions?
5: So my very first job, when I worked at my alma mater in their recycling office, I was just fascinated to learn what little people knew about waste. And because of that, after I was working in the field for years and years and years, I thought, why not talk about it online? People clearly want to learn. People are calling and asking these questions right now in the show. They want to learn. And there's not many people talking about it. So that's why I decided to become a climate communicator and focus a lot of my efforts on waste.
2: Yeah. And so we should say, you know, obviously you're you're on Instagram, uh, you're on uh, TikTok, you have hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, and uh, one thing that I really appreciated looking at your social media feeds was it was, it was positive things that I can do to help the environment. I mean, there, there's so much out there online right now that when I read it, my brain just shuts down because it seems like You know, you you start doom scrolling really, really quick when you read when you read climate stories online.
5: Absolutely. And I was falling into that same path, which is why I decided to also become a climate optimist and talk about solutions. And when talking about issues, try to give things people can do in their average daily lives to make a difference.
2: Uh, So we're going to go to the phones here. We have uh, Allison in New Hartford is calling in. Uh, Allison, thanks for staying on hold. We appreciate it. You're on where we live.
6: Good morning. Um, I have had some experience with um, the Burlington, Vermont areas' um, garbage collection, kitchen scrap collection program. And um, what I remember of the rollout was that they very carefully um, informed, educated, coddled, the public to understand what this was all about. And they started a couple of years before they actually affected the program. And then there was the container for your kitchen counter and the bags and all of that stuff that um, you could easily get from town. And now they have the weekly pickup and the van comes to your house and grabs the pail and dumps it and puts it back. And it's neat and tidy. And I think the the city of Burlington, as I understand it, I've, I've left since then, but as I understand it, the city is quite cooperative and the program has been successful. And I'm curious about your take on that particular program and whether it's something that could be used in Connecticut at all.
2: Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll throw that over to you, Elena. you know, cities and towns tackling this food waste uh, uh, issue. Uh, what have you kind of observed nationally about success stories on this?
5: So it sounds like this program is quite a success story. I mean, they started with the education way before the program got rolled out, so everyone knew what to do when the program started. I would actually love to see a program like this where I live in Tennessee. And in fact, when I worked for a government agency here in Tennessee, that's something I've fought for. We really don't have public composting programs here. I'm very lucky in that I have a private composting company that comes and picks up my compost once a week, kind of like this program sounds like. And on a national scale, we're seeing more and more communities move towards managing organics. And it sounds like we need to be looking to Burlington because that's exactly what you want to see education, continued communication with the agency picking up your compost in cooperation with local businesses and residents.
2: Uh, Faye is calling in uh, from Guilford. Faye, you're on where we live.
4: Hi, thank you so much
1: for taking my call. I do compost, but I don't want to put my garden waste with weeds in it into my compost, because that's just going to encourage them to end up in my garden. I called the DEEP and ask them, is there a biochar location where I can take the garden waste? They had no clue. So how can you help?
2: Uh, so I think the, the question there is how do I dispose of my, my, my garden waste? Any tips?
0: That's a great
5: question. So obviously you don't want to have weeds in your backyard compost pile because of course it leads to more weeds in your garden. My recommendation is to try to reach out through maybe like a local farmers co-op or maybe a local community gardening organization to see if there's a place you can drop it off to. Before I had curbside compost here and I didn't want to compost in my backyard, I would send it to a local farmer who was more than happy to take my waste for me.
2: Uh, Thanks for that. We have uh, another question here. We're we're just throwing them at you, Elena, so (laughs) uh, you're you're fielding them well. Uh, Allie is calling in from uh, New Haven with a question about uh, garbage trucks uh, that she saw in her community. Allie, you're on Where We Live.
0: My comment is about the dumpsters that I saw at one of the schoolyards where my son goes to school. I was walking the dog, and I was so excited that I saw in the of the school, which is obviously, you know, plenty of people come to, um, They had made a new bin specific for cardboard and paper, and it was a big brown bin, you know, that said cardboard only, cardboard only, next to the big brown one that says trash. And walking the dog one morning, I saw the waste management truck come in and pick it up with the two forks and dump this huge thing into the truck. But then it went ahead and picked up the cardboard and put it all in with the trash. And I was so confused. I was so excited that they had made a cardboard only recycling bin thinking, oh, good. The city of New Haven is doing something with all the cardboard, and then there, lo and behold, it just all got dumped together in the same truck. So I was angry, a little bit angry, and confused. Can you explain what happens and why divided if it all gets mushed together?
2: Yeah. So, Elena, can can you, you know, pick that up there? Uh, I I think a lot of that has to do with <laughs> sort of waste streams down 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 the road. But uh, yeah, what can you say about that?
5: It can really happen for three reasons, and this is one of the dirty little secrets in the waste industry that not a lot of people talk about. The one reason it could happen where both waste streams go in the same truck is it may go to a materials recovery facility that tries to get recycling out of both the trash and the recycling waste streams. This is quite expensive and quite labor intensive, so you don't see it that often, but it does still exist. Another reason is because the recycling waste stream was contaminated. It was too dirty. It was too full of things that couldn't be recycled, and it had no choice but to go in the trash. That's why it's really important we follow our local recycling guidelines to prevent that from happening. And then lastly, this happens sometimes, and it entirely depends on the downstream market for the recycling material. Sometimes it's just too expensive to recycle the product, and temporarily it might have to go to a landfill although more and more areas are having storage spaces for recycling to prevent this from happening. So it could be there's no money in recycling right now. It could be the recycling is too contaminated, or it could just go to a very specialized facility.
2: Uh, Lori on Facebook uh, wrote in with a comment recommending the graphic novel Trashed, saying it packs a punch by literally illustrating the cold, hard facts about waste in America um uh, Elena you know you you got to a few of those there actually in, in in your answer um i guess just you know at a high level sort of what what are you seeing about the stuff that we're throwing away and maybe i'll even just fine tune that question a little bit um let's talk about food waste a lot of the stuff that we put in the trash can uh, is is food in fact you know the EPA says i i it, it's it's a lot lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah
5: it is a lot lot so one of the main forms of waste in our municipal trash is organic. So it is food waste and other things that can compost out. And in fact, one of the biggest issues we see at landfills outside of potential groundwater pollution from just trash is landfill gas generation due to organics. So the main reason we have that stinky landfill smell is because of organics such as food waste breaking down in our landfill. And it can be very expensive to try to manage this gas because no one wants to smell it. No one wants it around. And it contains methane, a greenhouse gas that is more potent in the short term than carbon dioxide. So when it comes to future waste management, moving towards managing organics seems to be the key.
2: Yeah, here in Connecticut, according to the state's uh, most recent waste characterization study, uh, 41% of what residents throw away is organic material. Uh, So think food scraps, yard waste, um, stuff that can be composted or converted into energy through anaerobic digestion or uh, processed into animal feed. And uh, here in Connecticut, food scraps alone represent uh, 22 percent of residential trash. So when I say a lot, lot, I mean, uh, it really is a sizable amount of uh, material that's going in. Um, What are some, I guess, uh, quick things people can do to maybe cut down on the amount of food that they're throwing away?
5: Great question. So one of the things I love is having a giant Ziploc bag in my freezer that I fill with veggie scraps.
2: I do that when too. I'm chopping up <laughs> stuff for dinner.
5: And then I save it and I make stock with it later on or use it to add it into recipes. Another great way is to only buy what you need at the grocery store. So don't be like, okay, I'm going to have this extra packet of veggies or meat or whatever, unless I'm going to use it because food waste, as in not just throwing away like leftovers we have, but throwing away food that never gets eaten at all, is one of the main forms of food waste we see globally. So just trying to cut down on what you don't need is probably the best thing you can do.
2: Oh, uh, We have Diane in New Haven, uh, who's been waiting on hold for a while. Diane, you're on Where We Live.
6: Hi, um, good morning. Uh, my question is, we... Um, about food waste and going down an insincorator or, you know, a a grinder in your sink. Uh, We have a compost, and we compost the things in our backyard that we can because New Haven provides us with a compost bin, and it's worked great. But, of course, there are scraps that shouldn't go in there, and we don't put them in there. But what is it a good thing to put things down an insincorator and grind it up? That's my question.
2: Uh, So how about that, Mm -hmm. using the garbage disposal?
0: Yep.
5: This is something else I know a lot about coming from a government perspective doing infrastructure projects. So we should absolutely not be putting any food scraps down our drain because they have a tendency, even if they're all grinded up to cause clogs in our sewer pipe systems. Now, if a little bit of food gets down in your drain, that's not a problem, but don't put like whole meals (laughs) down your garbage disposal. Um, Now, There is still obviously food waste that comes into our wastewater treatment facilities. And one thing we can do there is to compost the sewer solids so we can compost those. They can be applied onto crops or they can go to landfill as final cover. So even if your food does incidentally get down the drain, it might still be doing something good down the line.
2: Uh, Catherine from West Hartford, who we tried to get to earlier, had had a question, which I'll just say here, uh, and it was, how does eating a plant-based diet help with waste reduction? So uh, uh, changing your diet uh, as a way to impact the environment in a positive way. Can you speak to that?
5: Oh, that's a great question. So obviously, no matter what diet you have, the best thing you can do, like I said earlier, is just to reduce how much food waste you have. But when it comes to eating a more plant-based diet, It does reduce waste because when you eat more meat and dairy products, there's a lot of waste in the whole supply chain for that piece of meat or that piece of cheese or what have you to make it to your plate. So if you're eating like whole vegetables or beans or something like that, you're reducing waste overall. Plus, what I've noticed, at least in the grocery stores near me, is that I can find a lot of plant-based options without things like placket. Plastic packaging. So I'm reducing not only food waste, but packaging waste as well.
2: Uh, Elena Wood is the garbage queen, runs a climate communication platform by the same name that's dedicated to climate science and solutions. Uh, before we run out of time, I do want to talk about one other um, major uh, sort of waste stream uh, that's uh, really, really heightened. Well, you mentioned packaging, which is a, a whole other thing uh, which we might not have time to get into today. But uh, e-waste, uh, and you know, obviously this is a, a, a huge issue not only here in uh, Connecticut but nationwide and around the whole world. Um, Talk a bit about about sort of trends you're you're seeing there, and you know, uh, maybe give us some some positive notes <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that that you've uh, that you've seen with e waste and managing it.
5: Absolutely. So e waste is one of the fastest growing waste streams globally. I mean, think about it. Everything we have in our life is electronic now. <laughs> I made a video actually, I think about a week or two ago, where I showed my giant bag of random chargers and cords that I'm just holding on (laughs) to, hoping that I can use it instead of having to throw it out. So one thing when it comes to e-waste is that you should not throw it in your regular trash can. It needs to go to a recycling facility because e-waste has a tendency to cause landfill fires, groundwater and surface water contamination, and soil contamination at landfills. I've personally had to put out a landfill fire caused by a laptop battery, and it's not something I would recommend you be a part of at all. Mm -hmm. There is some good news when it comes to e-waste, though. Yes, it's going to grow as our population grows, as more of our world becomes digital. But we have better ways to recycle it. Before, we were mainly just shipping it abroad to more developing countries, which was harming the workers and the environment there. Now there are companies who are saying, hey, we're going to recycle our own e-waste as part of our supply chain instead of sending it somewhere else. And the biggest e-waste news of last year and probably this year, too, is the fact that the European Union has said if you want to sell electronics in Europe, you have to use a UBC charger, USB-C charger, excuse me, which is kind of the universal charger everywhere else. Which in turn will cut down on e-waste long term because you're only going to need one type of charger instead of dozens.
2: Yeah, that, that, as a consumer, that was a relief uh, to me, and that's been a point of annoyance to me for for years. Um, so uh, g- glad glad to hear that. I'm glad you glad you mentioned that. You d- you did mention uh, putting out. I think you said you put out a battery fire at at a landfill.
5: That is correct. Yeah. Uh, i ended up being underground and we didn't catch it for a while
2: mm. uh, i wanted to ask just quickly about batteries so obviously a lot of batteries do make their way to landfills if i have old AA batteries at my house um or if i have you know a lithium ion, lithium ion battery a rechargeable one um in, in my laptop like where where should those be going
5: so ideally they would be going to an e-waste drop-off facility hopefully run by your local government but i understand that's not accessible to everyone. Not every government does that. So if you don't have that in your area, try stores like Best Buy, Lowe's, Target, Staples, Office Depot. A lot of them have recycling programs specifically for batteries, but other forms of e-waste
2: too. Uh, We just have a couple minutes left here. Uh, Real quickly, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, I I guess, the importance of positivity when we think about uh, the climate and and maybe managing our, our climate anxiety. Um, so I, I guess, uh, Elena, I'm asking you to maybe kind of pull me out of the rabbit hole of climate hor- horror stories that I kind of go down sometimes when I'm online. Um, wh- what are some, you know, quick tips you would give uh, to people who, who, are, who are feeling that anxiety about, you know, everyday actionable things they can do in their own life to improve, um, you know, the environment in their local community um, and by extension, uh, the environment that we're all sharing?
5: Yeah, great, great question. So first off, that anxiety that you feel is absolutely normal. And studies have shown that the majority of young people in particular, but also older generations as well, experience it. And it's known as climate anxiety. One of the best ways to help reduce your climate anxiety is to take those little action items, whether it is composting your food waste or talking to your neighbors about what climate action items they're taking or if you can afford it adding solar to your house. But if you can't afford those things or you're already doing those things in your life and still freaking out, my recommendation is to cherry pick who you get your news from. If a particular news agency, journalist, creator you follow online is freaking you out, stop following them. You don't have to interact with them. And instead, maybe find people not saying it has to be me, but there is a whole group of scientists, journalists, and organizations out there that talk about climate optimism. They talk about solutions and the good we can have when we address climate change.
2: Uh, and, and about the minute that we have left, any advice you would give to to young people who are out there, you know, who might be middle school, high school aged, uh, quick things they can do to um, uh, improve the climate. I mean, I, I'm even thinking when you're not in the room, you know, turn off the lights. Basic stuff like that.
5: Yeah, I turn off the lights when you're leaving a room, turn off you know, your faucet when you're brushing your teeth, um, going outside. I know this doesn't sound like it's going to help, but it does. The more <laughs> in tune you are with your natural surroundings, the more likely you are to make change. So even if you don't have the means as a young person to go out and yeah. make grand sweeping gestures, just becoming more connected with the environment and your community is great. And the best thing you can do overall is just talk to people about it. Yeah, bug your parents, like I did growing up, it worked. <laughs> they started composting.
2: <laughs> uh, that's Elena Wood. She's the Garbage Queen, runs a climate communication platform by the same name. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the program today.
5: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
2: I'm Patrick Scahill. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thanks so much for listening.